0: This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology.
1: Look, we've all been down the path of integration, normalization, and operationalizing our security data. The common theme is a traditional sim can't keep up which is why we say Run Panther. Panther normalizes your security data and integrates into your security operations pipeline to provide complete visibility across your environment. Panther is a cloud-native security analytics platform built for engineers by engineers. Learn more by visiting runpanther.io. Thank you, Panther, for sponsoring this episode. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. One question I have for all the listeners is, what do you call cyberspace in space? I've always been a space fan. So has Chris. We had a lot of questions about what is the evolution of cybersecurity in space. So we brought in an expert. This episode, we speak to Frank Pound, Founder and president of Astrosec. And we had a great conversation with Frank about all things cybersecurity and space related. Can't wait for you to listen to this episode. Let's jump right into it.
0: What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. E- yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be
1: back again. In the studio today, we have a computer scientist, an entrepreneur, and someone that is working on the relationship between cybersecurity and space. In the studio today, we have Frank Pound, founder and president of Astrosec. Frank, we've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for a few weeks
2: now. Welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate it. Ron and Chris for putting us on. I've really been super passionate uh, about space. My whole life, growing up in Florida by the Space Center, and uh, pursuing you know my dream in computer science. Now that we have these satellites being launched almost every day, you can see uh, some great footage on, on YouTube of all the, the SpaceX launches. It's really time to start thinking about cybersecurity in space as well. So that's sort of where I'm coming from with AstroSec that's a topic that you guys are interested in as well. And that's, that's why we're here today. I'm really excited to talk about it. Absolutely,
0: Frank. We have a lot of parallels going through our career, and I'm one of the biggest fans of space and astronomy. But for the folks that don't know who you are
2: just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Chris, uh, you know, when we talked uh, before, we found out we shared some lineage uh, in the good old United States Marine Corps Ura, and served some time up at Fort Meade. So that was, uh, was kind of interesting to, to hear about your background too, Chris. With that background too, I also pursued a career in computer science early on as a software engineer, working with some big DOD-based contract shops, Raytheon. I also did some time at a startup, which was a sort of an interesting interlude, a company called Invicta Networks back uh, right around 2001 before the attacks uh, in New York City. That was, I guess, right at the tail end of the dot com boom. I have to tell you, it was super exciting to be involved in that. and uh, although it it didn't didn't work out for Invicta, it was really great to be involved in a ground floor cybersecurity shop. That's what Invicta Networks was doing, a lot of pioneering ideas uh, uh, back in those days. Interesting story about that company is that the founder, Victor Shamov, was a former KGB agent, believe it or not. and uh, and so he had defected to the United States back in the 80s and, and worked you know, with the government to overall make our national security safer because he believed in freedom and he believed in everything that was sort of the charter of the United States. So uh, he just wanted to, to put that out there. It was a, just a really interesting time to be involved. Shortly after that, you know, 9-11 happened and, uh, and everything sort of switched from dot-com investment over to national security. And I ended up taking a job with a, a company that was developing cybersecurity tools for the government. And to me, that was uh, super rewarding. I was, I was taking all the knowledge that I had learned at Invicta and also my programming experience at, at Raytheon and computer science degree and applying that to national security in the uh, cybersecurity arena. This is you know way back in the, in the early 2000s. At the same time, I was still in the Marine Corps Reserves. In 2003, I got recalled and I deployed overseas in Baghdad for uh, about eight months. And right there, it's sort of in the thick of things and got to see firsthand, you know, some of the the cybersecurity tools, you know, and the results of those things over there. And so working alongside the literally the same customers that I was supporting as a contractor, that was a really valuable experience. And I wouldn't trade that experience for anything to work alongside those folks. So I continued to do the cybersecurity work for the, for the government and uh, eventually years later it was about 2013 2014 I got a call from this organization called DARPA the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and several of my my peers had had end up you know taking jobs there as program managers and uh, one thing about DARPA to know is 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 it is a government organization but one thing about the people who work there uh, the program managers who manage all of the scientific research those are sort of temporary jobs. They're not tenured, unlike a lot of other government positions where you get the job with the government and then you pretty much can stay until you retire. DARPA is different in that way. It's a science and technology organization within the government. And it basically performs the work of, say, like a venture capitalist would in Silicon Valley, looking out at all the 5 to 10 to 25 year in the future technologies and deciding which ones need to be invested in. And, And they also look at people who would be best suited to help them uh, make those good investments and as such you know we're sort of they bring us in we, we execute some work and we bring in some programs and then they kick us out and they bring in the next batch and so so that's an interesting model so as soon as you show up at darpa you know the clock is ticking and so there's a there's a little bit of pressure to perform some pretty intense work to you know do that research to find these technologies and then you have to find the companies in the contractor base that can help you realize the vision. And so while I was at DARPA, I was there for five years. I ran some rather large programs involving uh, big cybersecurity operational uh, platforms. Some of those tools and, and capabilities have transitioned to Cyber Command and to the other forces. And I also did a, quite a bit of uh, classified work as well with some very interesting programs. So as the clock wound down and it was you know sort of time for me to leave, I was thinking about, you know, what am I going to do next? Am I going to go back to my contractor job, you know, doing the, the same thing that I was doing before? And I, am I going to go into the commercial industry and, and you know, work alongside one of my friends? I mean, dozens of my friends have started companies themselves, and and many of them are doing very well for themselves now in, in the cybersecurity market. And uh, And I thought to myself, you know, Being here at DARPA, I realized I had visibility into a lot of different domains. And one of the domains that I had visibility into was new space. DARPA had a lot of programs uh, kind of getting after new space. And one of those was DARPA Launch Challenge, which was sort of looking at companies that were out there looking to build small rockets that could get satellites up to space very quickly. There was also a a lot of programs at DARPA investigating small satellite technology, new materials for small satellites like solar panels and flat panel antennas and things like that. And I was thinking to myself, this is amazing, the pace of development and, and technology maturation that's, that's coming out of this organization and, and getting you know out there and being demonstrated. And then I started thinking to myself with all of the wisdom that I had learned in the cybersecurity field and my software engineering background, I was thinking back to some, some research papers that came out of the Air Force in 1971 or two there were some studies done about the vulnerabilities of time sharing systems, foundational work. Not a whole lot of people have read these documents, but they came out of this Air Force organization that was made sensitive to the fact that the time sharing big iron systems that IBM was developing and were starting to be used by the DoD, especially over there in the Vietnam War, they started doing data analytics in the 70s during the Vietnam War. The Air Force realized that there was going to be software vulnerabilities that could be leveraged. By an adversary and that was also at the sort of the beginning of the creation of the internet you know how do we network all these big iron machines together and create this distributed network where people can collaborate and darpa back then was called arpa the advanced research projects agency was core among the participants in the creation of the arpanet so i had all that knowledge and i'm thinking about the new space environment and i'm like we don't want to recreate this same scenario where we build all these amazing capabilities But we don't think about security until the last minute, which is kind of what happened with the Internet. You know, we created the Internet first for research. And, you know, in research, everybody is, uh, you know, on sort of a trust basis. You know, you trust your fellow scientists not to do anything evil. And then the, the Internet got commercialized. You know, it got released to the to the commercial world. And then you know, start to get into these security issues with ransomware and intrusions and intellectual property spying, and, and then the government starts putting lots of information on the internet, and then our adversaries, you know, want to get that information too. So we started off sort of on a bad foot with security. And I was thinking to myself, with cyber and space—no uh, pun intended—we uh, <laughs> don't want—we don't want to do the same thing there. And so, as I was leaving DARPA, I thought, I'm going to start a company, and we're going to get after making space safe that's what we're going to do you know i'd never run a company before anything like that and so no more safety of a government job no more safety of a job period and i started up this company and i started talking about my ideas and gradually you know using some of the relations that i had convincing people that this was indeed something we needed to work on that's how i I started AstroSec. here we are AstroSec is involved with several of these challenges that have come out of the Air Force, chiefly called HackASAT, And we've been just blessed to be involved in that. We're acting out our passions and our vision uh, to make space safe. And so so that's kind of where we are right now today, talking to you guys, and, and I'm really excited about it.
0: For everybody out there that's listening, if you could summarize the problem statement for cybersecurity in space, what would that be? And how are we taking steps in order to fix that?
2: Well, I think it all boils down to the efficiencies gained through the democratization of the technology, which is great. So when I say democratized technology, what I'm talking about is the democratized launch services, getting a mass uh, up in orbit around the planet that used to be incredibly expensive but not anymore you know it used to be that launching a satellite probably run you just just the cost of the launch alone would run you over 200 million dollars that's dropped to about 60 million dollars you know through companies like SpaceX and Rocket Labs and others and it's estimated to even drop lower to about 5 million dollars so that you have easy access to space and then you know the other part of that is what are you going to put in space and so the same thing right democratized access to the technology that operates in space so think about the explosion of iots on the market internet of things you know you've got all of these wearables these wearable sensors Uh, The Google Glass was a cool example of uh, a wearable IoT. And then you've got, you know, all through modern buildings, sensors are all over the place, you know, detecting the environment and and tuning the uh, HVAC systems to make sure they're as as efficient and uh, safe as possible. So the technology that allowed that to happen is the continued miniaturization of silicon and, and the circuits and the new materials that are enabling that to happen. So you've got this sort of fusion and joining of, of all these rapid, you know, advancements in, in both uh, space launch and the components that go to make up a spacecraft, which, you know, in essence are IOTs or industrial control systems. And they're getting smaller and smaller and cheaper and cheaper. Uh, and the third thing, the third pillar of that is the open source software movement, open source hardware movement, where you can go to GitHub or you can go to YouTube. And you can watch somebody teach you d- and describe how to build very sophisticated uh, things. Case in point, orbital dynamics, right? So that's, uh, you know, you, most people uh, to become expert in that would go to college in an aero-astro track, and they would spend a lot of time in mathematics and physics to learn how to perform three-body calculations, you know, how, how a satellite orbits the Earth and how to adjust the orbit of the satellite to get it into the right position, how to gimbal a satellite to point it in the right direction to take a picture of something on the Earth while it's going 17,000 miles an hour in the Earth orbit. So that's very complicated and it takes a lot of training in order to do that. But what's happened is, is people have, uh, experts have produced software libraries that do that for you. Right. So I can go to GitHub today and I can download a a code repository or, or library That performs all these very sophisticated calculations. And I I can build that into these cheap electronics that perform the role of a satellite. I can do that today. And many people are doing that. And as I was sort of researching this phenomenon, I came upon a high school in California that was uh, building a satellite. And the satellite was built by this high school out of Irvine, California. And the name of the satellite appropriately was called Irvine. They built two of them. There was an expose on, on one of their websites where they, they showed the science lab at the high school. And there's all these kids that are super excited. You know, it's like a maker space. And they're not building Lego Mindstorms. They're building a satellite, like the real thing. And, uh, and I thought to myself, I'm, I'm like, this is amazing, right? I, I just, this has never really happened before where this kind of Capability. you know, 20 years ago, the only people building satellites were the United States, Russia, and China, right? You know, big, uh, you know, big nation states that had massive budgets. And in addition to, you know, telecommunication systems, those satellites that we were building were also uh, military specific satellites with military purposes. But now you have a high school, right? Building a, a earth observation satellite that has high definition cameras on it that can take, uh, you know, potentially take pictures of the earth. Uh, where the resolution is up to you know, you can see things as small as one meter across. And so I'm thinking to myself, you know there's a lot of software that goes into that. Where are they getting all the software? And then I started thinking, you know, who's gone through all of that software and checked it to make sure that it's safe, free of bugs, uh, and free of vulnerabilities? And I don't think a lot of that has taken place. Now, it's not entirely the case, right? because a lot of these satellites might run some version of Linux, right? So Linux, is an open source operating system used all over the place every, every you know amazon uses linux right in their cloud aws microsoft probably uses some version of linux and azure and so knowing that microsoft and, and amazon are using linux they've probably gone through it with a fine tooth comb to remove all the vulnerabilities possible and they do indeed do this and google does too with uh, oss fuzz uh, they continually try to find vulnerabilities in these, these libraries but that's just a, a part of the software. There's customizations that have to be made, and then there's drivers for specific payloads, and there's specific code that has to be developed too. So who's making all that code safe, right? Who's gonna keep that satellite from going awry or experiencing some sort of fault that it didn't expect and slipping out of its orbit and you know potentially getting in the way of another satellite and causing a collision in space? That can be compounded. You know, There was that famous movie uh, with Sandra Bullock several years ago, Gravity and uh, and you saw sort of the worst case scenario of what can happen when there's a small collision in space. It just compounds itself. Oh yeah. Um, now people will argue; they'll say, "Well, space is very sparse. Even in low Earth orbit, if we launch thousands of satellite, it's still the chances of that happening are very small." But the thing is, um, we're not stopping on launching satellites. We're only continuing, and so the the curve is you know starting to become exponential about the number of objects in space. Those things will deorbit eventually, but the United States only has control of what the United States launches in orbit. We don't have control over what uh, you know the rest of the world puts up in orbit. So it becomes very tricky. And so you, you want to be concerned about the safety and health of these things that we're launching. And so going back to Irvine 1 and 2, one of the highlights, one of the things the kids were studying was uh, ion propulsion systems. And so not only are they launching a small CubeSat up in space, but this CubeSat has a propulsion system. So I'm thinking to myself, well, what happens if that goes wrong? What happens if that software is not perfectly written? So what if somebody commandeers that satellite? What if somebody commandeers that telemetry link that command, you know that controls that satellite as they're trying to do their experiments uh, and purposely does something malicious with it? And then you can kind of think about you know all the after effects of that. And so that's just a small example, and that was one of the things that that really kind of you know solidified it for me that we really need to be concerned about this. And sort of in parallel with that, at the Space Symposium in 2019, a big, you know, international space conference that's held in Colorado Springs at the at the Broadmoor, beautiful place, beautiful time in the summer. Big players in the space environment were there. I, I saw Richard Branson, Jim Bryden's Stein, the the head of NASA at the time, uh, right there, you know, in the lobby, and uh, all the big defense contractors, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and global contractors too, Tala's Japanese space agency, Roscosmos, everyone is there. It's just a, like an amazing conference to go to. Just, and, and at the time in 2019, before COVID hit, the buzz in space was out of control. It was so exciting. Everybody was super excited about space. So you go there, and and I heard some. Talks by uh, the Department of Commerce. Wilbur Ross was the head of the Department of Commerce at the time. And one of the things that the Department of Commerce was, was wanting to invest in was space. And, and part of that investment was safety. And so they had spearheaded this organization called the Office of Space Traffic Management. And the idea was, you know, as the airplane became prolific back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, we started carrying passengers and payloads and sending mail via air the skies became super crowded, right? And it became dangerous. You, know, you can't just fly your own crop duster over from one city to the next because people were having collisions. So they started air traffic control systems and navigation and all those things. And all of that was enhanced and refined and perfected. And so we have this amazing air traffic control system today. And so Department of Commerce I can't explain why Department of Commerce is involved in space, but it's just the way it is historically been. You know, they're also involved in air traffic control. But they're thinking to themselves, you know, what is what is this democratized uh, capability going to look like when everybody's flying their own spacecraft in the next 25 years? The skies are going to be incredibly crowded. Not only are we going to have to worry about airplanes taking off, we're going to have to worry about rockets taking off and launching satellites. And we're going to have to worry about low Earth orbit and, you know, all of the things that are you know zipping around at 17,000 miles an hour, 500 miles up in the sky, you know, in various different orbits. You know, how do we manage that? Department of Commerce, I think, was looking at this sort of fusion of air traffic control and space traffic control into sort of this big situational awareness capability where regularly going to space for the purposes of, of getting somewhere very fast. And you saw Richard Branson just do that. And that, that's, that was his vision is he wanted to use space as a way to sort of supersede the fastest airliner around uh, by going into orbit temporarily and coming back down. So Department of Com- Commerce was there talking about that. It definitely became at the top of my list to, to think about, you know, how do we grapple with these problems and, and what do we do to, to solve these problems?
0: And isn't there a potentiality that if there's so much stuff in orbit that's traveling that fast that there is a potential for a cascading effect to have trillions and trillions of particles from all these satellites smash into each other and then make space travel pretty much impossible at some point.
2: Yeah, it's sort of the worst case scenario. Some of my science friends who, who say, you know, the space is extremely sparse. Everything is, you know, it's so big, you know, space is massive. The analogy is even in low earth orbit, the size of a satellite, you know, think think of a CubeSat uh, which is a little bit smaller than a than a basketball. Think if you took that basketball and I said, Chris, I'm gonna go hide this basketball on the earth somewhere. Okay, turn around and I'm gonna go hide it somewhere. And then I say, Chris, go find this basketball. That kind of gives you an idea of the the massiveness of what we're dealing with uh, with space, right? It's it's just there's so much room out there. However, and you know your point is is taken is that we're not stopping when we're launching these things up in, in low Earth orbit. We keep adding and adding and adding these satellites. So yes, there is the potential for that to happen. It's not unheard of, and we, there are close calls that that happen almost on a you know six month basis. There's a lot of websites out there that track uh, space objects, uh, and you know sort of like train spotters. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that are very interested in sort of nerdy about, you know, what satellites are doing, what, where they are, but it's also, it's also super important. And you're right. You know, if something like that does happen, there can be a cascading effect and it can get, you know, sort of out of control. The potential for that happening is super low, but the potential exists, right? And I, and I'll cite like, you know, some other sort of catastrophic things that where the potential was really, really low, but it happened anyway. You know, sort of extreme examples here. I'll, you know, uh, the nine eleven example. The potential was very, very low for, you know, some guys to hijack airliners and crash them into buildings, but it happened. COVID. You know, the potential was very, very low for a virus like this to, to leak out to the to the public. You know, from uh, from animals, but it did make that jump. And now, you know, guess what happened? And then you think about cybersecurity. The potential for some of these vulnerabilities to be catastrophic to the world and to our networks. And it keeps happening, right? Just recently, you know, solar winds had another uh, vulnerability that was being used uh, actively, right? And so we can't be overconfident that something's not going to happen and not look into it. We need to look into it. We need to actively start making things safe now. I would argue too that there's nothing wrong with looking at the security of software that's going into satellites. In uh, proposing ways to make satellites much safer and uh, more rigorous in design uh, than is done today, especially with a lot of new folks joining the space community, right? that don't have that heritage building these very sophisticated satellites. I think they probably want some help in ensuring that you know what they're going to be putting in space is just as safe as it can be. And I think too, the insurance companies are going to be insuring these things. They probably want some some sort of assurance. That what they're insuring is as safe as possible, too, right? Because if something catastrophic does happen, you know who's, who's going to be paying out, you know, recouping the costs of, of that catastrophe. So yes, there is there's definitely concern, but I, I don't want to I don't want it to go haywire. It's it's you know it's the likelihood of something like that happening is very low, but we should get after it. We should um, because the you know, the future of the whole world is is in space. It's pretty obvious that um, that is you know the next big frontier for sure.
1: Chris, what Frank is saying, don't worry, he has it under control. AstroSec is <laughs> looking into
2: all the vulnerabilities, right, Frank? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And uh, working with the Air Force on Hackasat, you know, that was sort of a, a forcing motion by the Air Force to say, hey, satellite industry, we're going to demonstrate uh, these vulnerabilities in satellites. And we're also going to demonstrate ways to make make them much safer. And uh, with, with Hackasat One, Kind of funny, you know. We we did that during a pandemic, but we pulled it off super effectively. We recruited teams from around the world, and as they came to the virtual capture the flag event, uh, virtually, you know, in virtual Las Vegas, we really were happy about the results because we didn't know they were going to do so well. We didn't know that we were going to be able to recruit people who were experts in cybersecurity. And orbital dynamics, and a lot of hackers, you know, don't have the, you know, there's not that intersection. But we did. We found some amazing teams from around the globe who who were really knocking out those challenges that we built for them. And uh, you know, everything from orbital dynamics to radio communication challenges where there was vulnerabilities. We even had a challenge that was based on the old eight-bit Apollo computer, the flight computer, where you know there there was uh, no security whatsoever other than it uh, was super obscure. And, and the competitors really dynamically shifted gears and were able to focus and, you know, both find those vulnerabilities and patch them as well. So I think that was, you know, really the first demonstration of, of those vulnerabilities. We woke a lot of people up. We got a lot of attention. Uh, and then, the, you know, shortly after that, the the whole Space Force started, you know, the Space Force was, and then a lot of the the folks involved in Hackasat actually were part of that new Space Force. And so the good thing too is that, the Space Force could hit the ground running with this baseline understanding of, you know, number one, the vulnerabilities that that we're discovering, a good framework by which they can prototype mitigations and best practices and make things better, and also use a lot of that material for training. We just started up this big new arm of the military. The first thing I would ask is, okay, where do we send them to school? You know, where do we send all the new people to school? How do we teach them about this stuff? So we we developed a lot of that with HACASAT and the Air Force and the contractor base that actually built all the challenges and built the flat sat. I want to send a shout out to a company called Cromulance, who uh, who built the, the actual flat sat that was used in the competition and, and built a lot of the challenges. They did a, an amazing job.
1: It's interesting when you look at safety and security, because whenever there's faults in either of tools or solutions or devices that... Provide safety and security, you want to put in alternatives if those controls fail. Like you were talking about, if a plane were to be hijacked or a satellite were to be commandeered, you probably want to put alternatives in if that situation were to happen. As you look through vulnerabilities and satellites, as you look for attack vectors in space, what's at the top of your mind? What is a good place for the industry of cybersecurity to begin looking
2: at when we look at security in space? I think number one is the supply chain. I see that as probably our, our biggest weakness. A lot of the silicon that goes into building these things you know, doesn't have traceable origin. You know it's ba- basically in a packaged format uh, and comes in a roll, and then it gets soldered onto a board and, and on its way. Now, uh, people do spot checks on, on silicon with uh, electron scanning microscopes and things like that. Uh, but that's really hard and it, it's not really scalable uh, to, to do that for a lot of the things that we're seeing today. So I think there is some some risk in the supply chain, especially not only a cyber risk or and it could be a nation state or it could be some sort of an adversary that's interested in financial gain who could build some sort of ransomware trigger uh, into the silicon somehow. Right. So that's not impossible to do. The other issue with supply chain, too, is and this is happening today in the auto industry. Is there was there was a less less of a demand for uh, production last year, and so a lot of the factories cut production, or they sold to other industries, not the automobile industry. And there were some uh, unlucky events. There was a fire, and a big chip maker uh, over in Japan who was uh, producing chips for some of the big three automakers. And and so now you've seen a lot of it in the news. There's a shortage of cars, shortage of rental cars. We're sort of held hostage by this uh, lack of silicon for automotive electronics. The same thing could happen in the space industry. And, you know, that might become an issue, could become an issue. I was in uh, a meeting a couple of weeks ago. I can't give too many details about this, but there was, a, uh, there was an effort afoot to, to build, you know, an amazing new capability of constellation of satellites for sensing and really, really cool projects. And one of the suppliers was using parts that came from another country. Well, that other country is not necessarily on the best footing in diplomatic relations with us. And I, I guess what happened is when that country heard that their parts from you know a company in, in their country was was going to be selling to the United States, they called off the sale. And so that wasn't a you know sort of hack attack or anything like that. It was just A supply chain problem where the country said, no, we're not going to make the sale. And now, you know, this other project is held up because they sourced those parts and used a supply chain they didn't have total control over. So you have to think about that, especially if you're building national security assets to keep the United States safe. You know, the country that protects our livelihoods and our ability to care for our families, you know, that's the United States. When I think about, you know, why, why we're here, where the United States protects us. And if the United States is vulnerable from a supply chain attack, then we are vulnerable, right? And so I don't think we want that to happen. So I think in in terms of national security assets, we need to think hard about our supply chain and maybe think about how we can better control that or maybe give more businesses in in the United States, in our borders, the ability to solve that supply chain issue. A crazy idea that I'd come up with a couple of years ago Was uh, you know partnerships uh, with Native American Indian uh, tribes who have you know land uh, that is uh, very rich in a lot of the minerals and rare earths that go into producing electronics, and I was thinking to myself, you know, we I think we have everything uh, here in the United States we need to produce our own own chips and silicon. What better way to do that than make agreements with the Native Americans who would probably love to to have that sort of production capability? And, you know, we would be able to compete with other, you know, foreign governments like China, Taiwan, who are producing all these chips for us. You know, what if we had that production capability here and we actually gave back to the to the Native Americans? So I, I, it was kind of a crazy idea. I, I, there's actually some talk of doing that. There is a supply chain issue. So that's probably the number one concern. Number two would be software. More software equals more bugs. I mean, those bugs can be mistakes can be malicious you know software developers can be you know malicious and so some of these uh, open source third-party libraries may contain backdoors we don't know that for sure so I think in terms of software one of the things that that needs to be done is much better analysis of the software and it's hard that's probably one of the hardest problems there is is to is to provide some sort of confidence that software is safe and that's sort of some legacy, technical baggage that we have from the 60s when we were rapidly developing new computers and needed software and programming languages so we could write software for this new equipment, new hardware that IBM was was chiefly producing. And the choices were made back then to use computer languages that were what were called sort of ambiguous. They would behave when compiled in ways that weren't necessarily predictable. And so there was a chance to use computer languages that were mathematically provable you know when you write the code there's only one way this code is going to work and it, it wouldn't allow for race conditions or misuse of, of buffers and, and things like that so because it was all sort of mathematically proven but we didn't we didn't do that back then and so now we're kind of dealing with all of this ambiguity in the way we write software and it's a super hard problem to deal with. It's impossible to distinguish between malice and mistakes because of that, right? So what do we do? What do we do to to account for the software that's that's uh, sort of out of control? For the most part it works, right? Every you know, I've got a computer today and I'm using it for this podcast and it's working just fine and there's billions of you know things happening right now. However, that doesn't mean it's bug free. There's probably millions of bugs in the software that just have not been discovered. So what do we do? How do we how do we kind of tease out all of these bugs? And one of the ways you do that is with this technique called fuzzing. And fuzzing is basically the idea of I don't have the, the time or resources to, to go through every single line of code by hand with a team of people, but what I can do instead is I can find the interfaces that let me use this code, like the API interfaces, like you know, printf is an API interface. And what I can do is I can feed malformed input, fuzzed input into all of these API interfaces and monitor the software and see how it behaves. Make sure that you know it, if it encounters this bad input, it knows to reject it or handle it appropriately. Um, and so there's a lot of activity in the fuzzing uh, domain, I, I guess. And actually, DARPA did a did a big program called Cyber Grand Challenge, where they they built a uh, sort of instrumented operating system from scratch, and they had a, a team of competitors whose goal was to find all the vulnerabilities in this operating system you know, through any way that they saw fit and and most of them used, you know, some derivative of fuzzing, although they did it in a very sophisticated way. And it was it was pretty amazing. These fuzzers would find the vulnerabilities, but not only that, they would automatically patch the code as well. So I think for this number two concern of software, I think one of the things we need to think about hard in the space community and cybersecurity is taking a lot of those automated systems and applying it to the software that's going into the spacecraft. And also into the payloads, uh, when I say payloads, I mean uh, the imagers and the, the things that are performing the, the work of making money for the spacecraft. You know, spacecraft by itself doesn't do much except stay in orbit, so you have these payloads that actually are the money makers. And so all of that is driven by software and, uh, and providing you know, some sort of automated testing, fuzzing uh, and analysis tools. Uh, to uh, To these uh, small companies, I think would be would be great you know it w- w- imagine an environment where, where I 'm a small sa- uh, satellite developer uh, like this high school in Irvine, and I can take my satellite, and my source code and I can hand it over to a group who'll do this independent validation of it and i'll, I'll analyze the hardware you know i 'll shake it to make sure it 's not going to fall apart i 'll expose it to high levels of radiation to make sure it still behaves properly, but i 'll also fuzz the software uh, i 'll shake the software, so to speak. To make sure that it is survivable and as safe as it possibly can be before the satellite gets launched. I think, I think there would be a great value in a service like that. In fact, you know, the Hackasat program sort of you know, built a, a sort of similar system where the teams that were competing were the ones who were performing all these actions on the satellite to sort of tease out all of these bugs and issues. So that's, that's the, probably the number two concerns the software.
0: I think you're piquing the interest of a lot of people around the world right now. For the folks like me that are interested in both space and cybersecurity, it's our passion. How would you recommend someone going about finding that cybersecurity role or doing missions in space?
2: The opportunities are only growing. I can say that. I mean, this is a great time to be alive if you're passionate about space uh, and if you're passionate about cybersecurity. And as we move into space more and more, there's going to be a need for people that know how to speak both languages of space and software. And so just a couple of examples, NASA. NASA is investing heavily in this concept of the Lunar Gateway. Um, you know, we're going to the moon, right? We're going we're gonna to have boots on the ground in, I think, three years, according to Jim Bridenstine, uh, the former director of NASA. And so how do we get there? Well, we get there with this thing called the Lunar Gateway. The Lunar Gateway is going to be, you know, the, the ISS. You know, the ISS is the satellite, the, the big space station orbiting Earth right now. But They're going to build a new one. But this one's going to be halfway between the moon and Earth. It's going to be massive. And it's going to be the gateway for astronauts to get to the moon. It's going to be sort of a staging area for all the supplies, uh, all the rockets to dock, you know, sort of in a way to make uh, living on the moon uh, sort of a persistent thing. So think about that. Human beings are about to persistently inhabit something natural other than the earth, right? So we've been living on the ISS, but that's not natural. We built that. There's a massive amount of technology that we're going to rely on. And that technology involves lots of software. It involves lots of electronics. And a lot of silicon is going to be running and performing some function. And so, if you have a whole community of people, a city of people living on the moon, that are wholly reliant upon the, the proper functioning of software, you know, today in my office, if the software breaks that's running the HVAC system, uh, I can go outside and I can get fresh air. You can't do that on the moon, right? right? And and so and so, there's going to be a massive amount of opportunities for people to get involved, and groups like NASA and all the companies that are supporting Lunar Gateway and supporting all of these other space-based adventures, like what Richard Branson's doing with better space travel for uh, high-speed replacement of of global earth travel. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for people to really pursue those dreams. And a lot of colleges and universities are going to start establishing curriculum that's going to get after this too. In In the government itself, the Department of Commerce no doubt is gonna start up this office of space traffic management. And chiefly among their concerns are the things we're talking about right now. And so the opportunities are far and wide for new folks coming, uh, you know, coming up through school, and even for for old geezers like me, you know, I was in my late forties uh, when I really had a chance to get into cyber and space. Again, no pun intended. But both of those were my passions from from day one, and I didn't really have uh, an opportunity until you know the the timing was right. And I tell you, the timing is is perfect right now, and, and we need your help.
0: Fantastic. Frank, this was a masterclass on cybersecurity in space. For the folks that want to know more about the Hackasat program and continue to follow all the great things that you're doing in cyberspace, what are the best ways that people can do that?
2: On Twitter, they can go to Hackasat, hashtag. There is a -a Hackasat website, hackasat.com. And all the details of the upcoming competition are there. And if you're lucky enough to go to Las Vegas this year for DEF CON, there's going to be an expose of uh, the competition there. The actual competition is not going to take place in Vegas this year. It's going to take place about a month later. But there is going to be a lot of demonstrations. There's going to be an expose. I think in the Aerospace Village, they'll have a a, a section dedicated to Hackasat. Uh, They'll have videos of the prior Hackasat, and they'll have interviews with some of the teams that competed. Other uh, resources, if you're into Cyber Capture the Flag competitions, uh, CTF time is is a great place to go look at last year's results. And uh, a lot of teams actually put write-ups and solutions to their challenges on GitHub, so you can search for those as well. But there's a lot of really cool stuff out there.
1: That is super exciting. I can't wait for it. We will be sure to drop the Hackasat challenge and previous information in the share notes for everyone and maybe even Chris and I will compete who knows but Frank it's been a true pleasure thank you so much for joining us and we'll see everyone next time
2: absolutely thanks guys
0: if you found value in this content it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media sent it to a friend or talked about it over coffee thank you